Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcast. This episode is kindly supported by an educational grant from Nutricia. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I'm talking to Dr. Annalise Blinko about cow's milk allergy. Annalise undertook her medical training at the University of Auckland and completed her advanced training in paediatric immunology and allergy at Starship Children's Hospital. She has recently returned to New Zealand after embarking on a two-year fellowship in Canada. Annalise works as a paediatric immunologist and allergist at Starship Children's Hospital and in private practice at 188 Specialist Centre in St Heliers. Welcome, Annalise. Thanks, Louise. So, Annalise, we're talking about cow's milk protein allergy. I wonder if you can tell our listeners what is meant by this term. Thanks, Louise, and thanks for the opportunity to present in my first uh, podcast. So when we're talking about cow's milk protein allergy, sometimes the semantics can be difficult and confusing, and that's both for families as well as within uh, healthcare professionals in our medical community. So in essence, this encompasses both the immediate or what we refer to as the IgE-mediated food allergy, And these are the acute reactions, and really that's what I'm going to be focusing on in the podcast. It also encompasses non-IgE-mediated food allergy, and generally these are delayed reactions, these are gastrointestinal reactions that are thought to be due to other immune-mediated processes. So one thing I find helpful is when I'm talking with my patients is to explain that the semantics can be confusing but it is important to try and separate them out because they are, in essence, two distinct clinical entities that have very different underlying immune processes and etiologies, and hence they have really different clinical approaches, particularly when it comes to diagnosis. And we're going to talk about that. So who to test, when to test, and when it is and isn't appropriate to do. It will affect management, um, and ultimately the natural history and prognosis is different between the IgE and the non-IgE processes. So I'm going to focus on the IgE, but I will delve a little bit into the non-IgE as well. So Annalise, you've mentioned etiology. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about that now. Sure. So as I was just mentioning, it is really important to determine whether when a patient presents to you with possible cow's milk protein allergy, is this reaction IgE mediated or an immediate reaction or a delayed or non-IgE mediated reaction. When we think about IgE mediated food allergy, what we're seeing happen here is that the patient has what we call a skewed TH2 or an allergic atopic type response. And under this type of response, the B cells shift to produce allergen specific IgE. So there we have the presence of these specific IgE antibodies against the food, and in this case, the cow's milk proteins. So when that patient is exposed to cow's milk, this will bind to these specific IgEs, which are found on the surface of our allergy cells. And if you think back to med school, um, these are our mast cells and our basophils. And if you look very closely at those cells, they're filled with a lot of preformed granules. These contain things like histamine and other inflammatory cytokines, leukotrienes, which really drive the inflammatory response. Now, once this has happened and these cow's milk bind, these antibodies cross-link and lead to degranulation and release of these allergic mediators. And what that leads to is a very acute and immediate response. So we see kids having responses from within minutes to 
generally up to two hours in IgE-mediated reactions. If you want to compare that to the non-IgE-mediated reactions, so here I'm talking about more of the delayed gastrointestinal type reactions, so children with what was known really as the cow's milk protein intolerance, or the food, cow's milk-induced allergic proctocolitis, as well as other things such as uh, FPI, so food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome. The precise mechanism here is unknown, but we think it's still immune-driven, but again, it's delayed. So these are not happening immediately and generally not in the same way um, as we see our IgE mediation. And the key is in the history, so we're going to talk a lot about that. So how common is cow's milk allergy in infants or babies across Australia and New Zealand? And is it more common in certain groups? I'm sure everyone will know allergy is on the rise across the world. We're seeing a massive increase in the prevalence of all atopic diseases. So food allergy is really, really common in young children. And when they looked at an Australian cohort of of all comers, really, so we're going to steal their data here, it really affects up to 10% of children with around 1% or 2% of all infants, young infants, having cow's milk allergy. So that is actually reasonably common if you think across our population. We know that it's more common in babies with moderate or severe eczema. Um, Babies with eczema are more likely to have food allergies and kids with food allergies are more likely to have eczema. So there is that good Venn diagram there. And that babies who have a family history of allergy and eczema have an increased risk. So for example, if you have a patient who has one parent with an atopic disease, there's um, the increased risk is about by 30% um, of having food allergy and obviously more of these additional food allergies and other allergies in the family. What we don't know um, in terms of ethnic groups in New Zealand, we don't have great data for that at this time, uh, but it is something that we are keen to look at, um, obviously through our data that we have you know, at Starship. The data for the non-IGE mediated is really tricky. So while the IG mediated accounts for about 1% of children, the presentation of the non-IG mediated is really, really difficult. So these are often very young infants. The signs and symptoms can be very vague. There is no reliable testing for these patients. So we'll talk about how our skin and IG testing is not useful in these patients. So the diagnosis can be uncertain. But interestingly, some studies have uh, reported that perceived adverse reaction to foods is around 30% with cow's milk taking up a great proportion of that. Now, that will encompass patients that may have things like colic and reflux, which now we really have moved away from thinking that cow's milk has a has a great role in that we don't recommend um, elimination in those in those cases generally. Uh, so we don't quite know the numbers, but could sit anywhere, I must say. <laughs> and and Lisa, the particular ethnic groups that are more at risk or that are seen more often with this? Yeah, that's what I was just saying before, Louise, that we really don't know actually in our New Zealand cohorts. And, um, you know, at Starship, we obviously have a food challenge and a, and a great food allergy population, but we don't know exact number wise the breakdown, or I don't have, sorry to hand, the exact number breakdown for that. There is some data, for example, in Australia um, that well, there's a lot, you know, a lot of studies coming out of Australia that was looking, for example, at a second generation, so first generation babies born 
in Australia to patients of Asian ethnicity, there's significant increased rates of eczema and atopic disease in those patients, which may speak to the genetic, but also the epigenetics that is involved here in food allergy. And we know food allergy is so multifactorial in terms of genetics, epigenetics, your gut microbiome, vitamin D, omegas. There's so much that has been played into why so many more kids may have food allergies. So how do these children present? What are the clues in the history that we'd be looking for? And you've mentioned a spectrum of presentations. I wonder if we can talk through that for a moment. So there's definitely a spectrum of presentations. And I guess what we'd start with is is talking about the IgE mediated or the immediate cow's milk protein allergies, which we often classify around in the mild and the moderate and severe. The real clues and what will really form your diagnosis in these patients is the history. It trumps our testing and it is always in the history. So the the biggest thing I think to take out of this podcast is how to take an allergy history. Because if you can work out what's really been going on for this patient, it will really help in how to to manage them and, and how to investigate them. So in terms of how they present, so again, if you think about the etiology of Ig mediated, these are really quick reactions. You know, these are these cells degranulating. So generally, we see patients presenting within minutes to up to two hours. And about 75% of babies may actually present on their first or second exposure to cow's milk protein and even to very small amounts. And it's really important to really kind of dig into the history with the family in terms of what happened, what did they eat, in what form, how much did they have, and what was the timing of onset and then offset of these reactions. Because we know, for example, there's obviously a lot of different modified forms of cow's milk, and you may actually have a threshold in some patients that has elicited a reaction. The next thing really is thinking about what were the symptoms here. And often babies and children with IgE-mediated cow's milk allergy will present with a combination of skin, respiratory, and gastrointestinal signs. So our common signs, which we'd really classify as mild to moderate, would be things like swelling of the lips, face, eyes, so we're talking about angioedema, hives and welts. And they can be mild, you know, for example, a few little spots kind of come up over the face, you know, even to, you know, widespread urticaria, um, tingly mouth, tummy pain, vomiting. So that's always the questions I kind of ask through um, with the families when they, come, when, they, when they come in. When we start coming more into the severe reactions, we're talking about anaphylaxis. And anaphylaxis can obviously happen without having any of those mild to moderate symptoms at all. You can jump straight on in, okay? And really, it's any one of these things. So it's involvement of the respiratory, the cardiorespiratory system. So difficult or noisy breathing, swelling of the tongue. So difficulty swallowing. Babies may drool, be unable to you know, swallow water, swallow formula um, or milk. Um, swelling or tight throat. That can be really subtle in babies. I often say to patients, were they making it <coughs> type sounds, so throat clearing sounds. Wheeze or persistent coughing a change in their cry. So what's the quality of their voice like? Do they become hoarse, raspy, squeaky, funny? And often babies will go very quiet as well. You know, pale, floppy, dizzy, collapse, hypotension. 
So these are signs of the severe reactions or anaphylaxis. So that's really how I'd think about it from an IgE spectrum. The non-IgE mediated, again, is, is a little diverse. We kind of just jump a little bit sideways to that. So again, these are delayed reactions. These are generally presenting with gastrointestinal symptoms. Now, the non-IgE mediated calcium protein allergy is an umbrella. Again, that encompasses the good old cow's milk protein intolerance, the food-induced allergic proctocolitis, as well as things like the food protein-induced enterocolitis, and then much more rare enteropathies, uh, as well as eosinophilic esophagitis. But if we talk more about the cow's milk protein intolerance proctocolitis, because that's probably what is more commonly being seen by GPs in, in primary health care, so essentially, this often presents in very young babies, often in breastfed babies, which is really interesting, actually, and generally is pretty mild you know, and self-limiting. Most of these babies grow out of this by 9 to 12 months of age. So babies are generally well. They are thriving. Now, there is a spectrum within this as well, because we definitely see babies that are not doing well, that are not thriving, um, and we, we watch them very closely. That they may present with, you know, GI discomfort, explosive frequent poos, and blood in the, in, in the stool. So visible specks, mucusy streaks, and and often cow's milk is one of the main triggers and culprits in this type, you know, of reaction. And often relating to, you know, maternal uh, dairy ingestion if this is a breastfed baby. Um, to just mention F pies, and I'm not going to dwell on it, but just so that we know what we're talking about here. So. This is again immune mediated. This is very delayed onset. So generally after two to four hours, cow's milk is one of the main triggers with other things like rice, egg, um, fish, soy being other, other triggers here. Now these babies present, or children present essentially like they've got gastro, profuse vomiting, diarrhea that can be delay, delayed, pale, floppy, the temperature can be low, dehydration, even shock. So it's quite a distinct presentation from, from the other forms. And that's something essentially that kids tend to grow out of by school age. And we, we do challenge specific challenges for them. I'm not going to talk about food protein entropathy. That is very rare. Um, you know, that's where the gut is really inflamed. And essentially these kids are, are not growing and have really quite marked um, gastrointestinal symptoms. And as I mentioned before, we're really moving away from how much of a role that cow's milk protein has and other things that are attributed to it, like you know, reflux colic, the really, really fussy, fussy baby, because there's really no good evidence for eliminating cow's milk in those conditions. And Elise, just before we move on, can you just define FPIs for those listeners who may not be familiar with that too? Sorry, yeah, sure. So that's food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome. It's quite a mouthful, but otherwise known as FPIs. Um, there's some really good information on the ASCII website um, and action plans on the ASCII website, which we can link to as well. But again, if you see a, a patient presenting with, you know, delayed onset, profuse, I mean, these kids will vomit 8, 19, 20 times, present often misdiagnosed as gastro, shocked gastro a number of times before it really drops that that's what it is. Great. Thank you for that. So next we move on to examining our patient. What do we examine? So I think that, uh, you know, number one, two, and three, we always look at whether this baby is happy and growing. And I think that is the most important thing. What's this baby's nutritional state looking like? Because when we're talking about cow's milk protein allergy, 
we're actually talking about taking out potentially a significant nutritional aspect in a young baby. So that is important. Uh, so always, you know, plot the growth, uh, look at the trends, see what they're doing for both the Ig and the non-IgE mediated. Uh, these babies may be more atopic, so of course, any sign of eczema, what's their skin looking like? And we work really, really hard with our families and babies to optimize their skin care because uh, having a better skin barrier essentially means less of a trapdoor that's open for those lovely allergy cells to become sensitized to food proteins you know that are around in the environment and we know that happens so we work really hard it's important um, you know to manage eczema really well and again we kind of kind of talked about it before if this patient uh, you're seeing this patient and they're having acute reactions then again we're looking for those signs so urticaria hives angioedema swelling and then any you know evidence of cardiorespiratory involvement so you, investigations, you talked briefly before about skin prick testing and uh, IgE testing. So I wonder if we could talk about what is the most appropriate test to order for these children. Your most appropriate test is your history. And that trumps everything because you will find, you can essentially make a majority of your diagnosis of cow's milk protein allergy on your history. And here we talk about IgE mediated and non-IgE mediated, in fact. So that will really lead you down the line of whether or not you think that this patient has IgE mediated food allergy. So an acute reaction presenting with maybe a combination of the cutaneous, the gastro, cardiorespiratory type involvement with good timing and good story. Okay. The role of testing so skin prick testing or specific IgE testing, formerly known as RAST testing, is to confirm allergy where you suspect IgE-mediated food allergy. It really doesn't play a role in the non-IgE-mediated food allergy. It's often negative. It won't help you in those situations. Frustrating, I know, and very frustrating for families, but it won't help in that situation. I think. Before I launch into the difference between skin prick and specific IgE testing, it's important to understand the distinction between allergy and sensitization and what that actually means. So allergy is the clinical adverse reaction that has occurred and has reproducibly occurred uh, on exposure to a food. So that is the clinical history. That is your allergic reaction. Sensitization is the test. It is the presence of specific IgE antibodies against an allergen, which we can detect using skin prick testing or specific IgE testing. You can be sensitized to a food, but not allergic. You can be sensitized to a food and tolerate it. Okay, so sensitization does not mean allergy, but to diagnose like calcium protein allergy, you need that combination. So you need the clinical history, so the allergic reaction, plus the evidence of sensitization, if that makes sense. And that's really hard to kind of grasp. It's why we move away from screening big food panels for patients, particularly babies with eczema, because we will pick up sensitization. And Foods may then be eliminated, for example, that someone tolerates and they could lose tolerance. So there's quite a lot of intricacies in dealing with 
patients who are sensitised. So skin prep testing, um, that's done in the community. So here in Auckland, um, you can fill out a community um, request form with a consent form uh, or by general paediatricians, immunologists, and also, of course, um, GPs with special interests and, and training in that as well. So here, essentially, um, we're putting little allergen extracts on the skin and then very superficially, I uh, always tell kids I'm popping the bubbles and waiting 15 minutes and measuring the wheel. Now, both whether we're using scamperic testing or using blood testing, the size of that wheel or the degree of positivity of the blood test tells us how likely do I think that that child is truly allergic to that food. Okay, I'm going to have a lot of information from the history here. That's my pre-test probability. Then I have a look at my test result to determine whether I think that kitty is allergic or not. One really key point to take out of this is the size of the wheel or the positivity of the reaction never gives us any information about the severity of the reaction only ever the likelihood. So that's really important to explain to families. A test does not give you anaphylaxis, okay? You can have anaphylaxis with a very tiny, you know, test result in a hive with a very big one. And we have 95% um, positive predict values for, for example, skin prick testing. And if you look at milk, for example, in a baby that's under two or a child that's under two, a skin prick test of cow's milk of six millimeters would give you 95% positive predictive value of an allergic reaction at an oral food challenge, okay? And that changes a little bit with age. Specific IgE testing, RAS testing, that's blood testing. We would do that, for example, if um, the patient has had antihistamines, so it's not affected by use of antihistamines, whereas our skin prick testing, we need them off antihistamines for about four days beforehand. We do it, for example, in kids where their skin is not in good condition, we can't find a site or that's you know, what the family prefer to do. And sometimes we actually do both in parallel. If we're not quite sure, we don't believe one, we may look at the other. And sometimes we look at specific components in our specific IgE testing. Again, same thing runs true. The degree of positivity of your testing gives you a likelihood of reacting, never a severity. So that's important you know, to understand. And if I could say one thing, I would try and sway people away from doing food panels. So our golden rules, and testing are never test a food which is tolerated because you might find sensitization and eliminating that food may actually mean they lose their tolerance and become allergic. So that's really important. Test the food which you think has invoked the reaction, if you can. There will be some others we may test, for example, if there's cross-reactivity. So for example, you know, in the nuts or if, you know, the, the family is for example, really worried about introducing some other high-risk allergens, I often have a dialogue with them about the advantages and the disadvantages of screening with these tests because they're not very good screening tests, in fact. So if you can, try and limit your testing to the specific food that you think has caused that reaction because what you're looking for is confirmation of your history. Again, there's really nothing specific or reliable to test for the non-IG mediated. Reaction. So the babies with proctocolitis and, and calcium protein type intolerance, the test for that is allergen avoidance, essentially, and a really objective trial of that. So taking food out for two and up to four weeks, which should give you enough time to see if there's a difference, if this is an immune-mediated process, and then potentially putting it back in to see what happens. 
again, the, a clear plan around this is really, really important. So working with in primary care or involving general paediatricians, neurologists, dietitians, whoever you need to support you around this, but actually a really clear plan about what are you taking out, when are you putting it back in, when are you actually going to reassess what this means. Great, thank you for that. So thinking about differentials, what are the differentials for cow's milk allergy? Yeah, again, this is all going to be in your history, isn't it? Um, clear IgE-mediated food allergy. That history is fairly typical, you know, for those kind of reactions. You may have children, for example, that have chronic urticaria or other things that may give you those kind of reactions. And again, you need to be taking a clear history about the timing of reactions and those kind of things. But here we're talking about, you know, young babies with cow's milk protein. We see urticaria a lot, but we're less likely in, in those younger, younger populations. With the non-IGMEAD, there's probably a much broader um, differential diagnosis. So again, within that, we've got that FPIES, that food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome. We've got eosinophilic esophagitis or gastroenteritis, which presents with vomiting, regurgitation, poor growth, feeding intolerance, aversions. Often those kids have other allergic disorders as well. Um, then we have the non-immune reactions to cow's milk, and that might be things like lactose, you know, intolerance, other metabolic type conditions. And never forget that if things don't add up to you, and this patient is not responding like they should, really not following the rules like you think they should, or more severe, they're not growing, things like very early onset inflammatory bowel disease. So that's a really important thing to consider in a patient whose symptoms seem more out of the box. Um, other things, for example, like you know, constipation with fissures that might also give you bleeding, um, thrombocytopenia, uh, intersusception, meckles, and some of our primary immune deficiencies, in fact, things like chronic granulomatous disease that may present with an early onset inflammatory bowel disease. They're often misdiagnosed with cow's milk protein tolerance at the outset. So if it doesn't quite add up to you and this patient is not responding how they should, then that's you know, really important to think a bit outside the box um, for those patients. Now, I haven't talked about, and it does also, if you are reading about this, come under the non-IG-mediated food allergy, the link between eczema and food allergy, which is incredibly complex and difficult. And cow's milk is generally blamed a lot in the patients that I see. But generally, we don't think that cow's milk plays an integral role in the you know, promotion of eczema. And I try very hard to um, stay away from empiric elimination of cow's milk in those patients because they may you know, lose tolerance in those type of settings. So thinking about the diagnosis now, can a diagnosis of cow's milk allergy be made in primary care or does it require specialist input? Absolutely. And I think that's in fact where majority of our diagnoses are made and our primary care teams probably look after, you know, a huge proportion of patients with, with mild and then, you know, more moderate and severe um, reactions to cow's milk. So as I've discussed, and I know it's my key point one, two, and three, the most important thing we have is the clinical history. And any of us, you know, can take and take the time to take a really detailed clinical history. So absolutely, the diagnosis is going to be there in your history. Take the time to dig a little deeper and then decide whether 
this baby or this patient warrants testing and which testing you might consider. Again, the other key point, only test the food that we think is the culprit. So cow's milk, if we think they've got an IG-mediated reaction to cow's milk, and steer away from food panels if you can. Similarly, in non-IG-mediated cow's milk protein, again, the diagnosis is the history with management, first management being a planned and structured elimination reintroduction. And that absolutely can be done um, in primary care. Red flags are something that GPs and most doctors and healthcare workers like to know about. So are there particular red flags that would prompt an early referral to a specialist service? And if we are referring previously mentioned general paediatricians, dietitians, immunologists, who are we referring to? Sure. So I think if we think about what we need to see outside of primary care, first of all, patients who would have a definite or possible history of anaphylaxis. So patients who have the more you know, moderate and severe allergic reactions should be referred. This will depend on where you're based, essentially, as to who to refer these patients to. Our general paediatricians across the country are awesome and incredibly well-trained and incredibly skilled in looking after patients with cow's milk protein allergy. So they would actually take you know, the bulk of the work. So you could refer to your local general paediatric team. They would have dietitians and teams around them as well, particularly there's concerns about growth or you are obviously um, looking at modifying an infant's diet to help support families around that. In some of the bigger centres, there is obviously, of course, uh, paediatric immunologists, both you know, in the public and the private sector, that you could also tap into as a resource for that. The other uh, reasons for referral would include allergy to, to cow's milk in a young infant, because cow's milk actually makes up a really huge part of their nutritional intake, particularly in very young babies. So babies that have cow's milk allergy and also other nutritionally important foods, it is important to refer so that we can really diagnose, assess and institute you know, management for these kids. Always, if there is uncertainty about the diagnosis or about how to interpret the results, you know, I, I remember I have distinct memories of being a house surgeon, a pediatric house surgeon, and looking at my first specific IG test and having absolutely no clue of what it meant. What was this three plus? What did the degree of positivity mean? They're really tricky. So if you're actually got a result and you're not sure, do actually ask someone, what do you think that actually means for this job? Because it could be really important in terms of how we manage them. In patients who have food sensitization. Okay, so these are patients where they haven't had potentially that food and you've picked up that they have positive testing. What do you do with those patients? Okay, so in some of those patients, we may need to actually organize oral food challenges, which is another one of our tests, actually. Really, our diagnostic test is our gold standard diagnostic test to really clarify, does this patient truly have allergy or not? Or is it at a level that is so high that I'm going to say, actually, the likelihood is this kid's truly allergic and they need to avoid. So that's important to actually pull out and maybe give the, the, the patient a chance to either be challenged or, you know, the decision made about avoidance. 
Um, and if there is, you know, if guests thinking away from the infants, but to, you know, kids who have persistent food allergies, so we're coming into school-age kids, persistent food allergies, kids that might have other risk factors, so you poorly controlled asthma and food allergies, those kind of things, we're actually, we need to be thinking about some of the risk factors for reactions as well. For the non-IG-mediated um, cow's milk protein allergy, big ones would be if there's growth concerns, okay? So again, a lot of these cases are mild. They outgrow them by nine to 12 months, okay? But if there's growth concerns, there's nutritional concerns, they have you know, marked proctocolitis, you're concerned that there may be one of those other conditions going on that really doesn't fit the box. They really don't respond well to targeted eliminations or trials of different you know, formulas and, and other options, which we'll talk about um, in patients that have you know, FPIs or you're wanting to think about challenging food. Uh, so those would really be the reasons that um, would prompt referral. Where you refer is going to depend on where you are and which resources that you have. So we've got a baby infant child who's been diagnosed now with um, cow's milk allergy. Thinking about treatment options and management, I wonder if we can talk about these for a moment. Yeah, sure. So if we, again, focus on the IG-mediated food allergy, the first thing really is avoidance of the allergen. So initially, we would recommend avoidance of generally of all forms of cow's milk protein or dairy. Why I say initially is the natural history of cow's milk protein allergy is actually very good. So about 80% of children with cow's milk protein allergy will outgrow it by school age. And furthermore, about 80-85% will tolerate milk in a really well-baked form. So once you essentially change the protein structure, you change the, you know, the matrix, you have conformational changes in your allergen epitopes, some children are more likely to tolerate it in this form, which means we may be able to introduce those in specific forms or modified forms of cow's milk into their diet. So that really is important. We think about the natural history of food allergy and how we might manage this child coming through from being a, a young baby through towards you know, school age and on from there. But if we think back to being a young baby, pretty solids and you know, potentially starting there, we are going to recommend avoidance of cow's milk. Probably another key point to say is that breastfeeding is safe in all forms of dairy allergy. Okay, so we don't recommend uh, elimination of cow's milk from the maternal diet if this is a breastfed baby. Okay, in IgE mediated cow's milk allergy. Okay, so then we really need to consider what alternatives do we have to cow's milk. Now, if this is a mild to moderate reaction, so not anaphylaxis, um, and the baby is over six months of age, then soy and soy formulas may be reasonable to try. If they're under six months of age, then we jump towards an extensively hydrolyzed formula in, in the younger babies. Um, and they'll be calcium fortified if they're soy-based formulas. Any additional formulas we use, always make sure that we've got calcium enriched and fortified. If that's not tolerated from a soy perspective, then we would step towards extensively hydrolyzed formula. Now, if we're dealing with more severe um, reactions or anaphylaxis, again, soy may be an option here. If not, then we would go towards elemental or amino acid-based formulas that really don't have any of those residual cow's milk proteins there. So that would be the first thing that we do when we're thinking about other feeding alternatives. It's not a breastfeed baby. And then going through, we would monitor 
the trend of you know testing and taking history every time that we see these babies and often we would see um, kids with cow's milk protein allergy on an annual basis initially to repeat their testing and watch for any sign of improvement or resolution we often refer them for a milk and baking challenge at around 12 months of age when they're taking things of a muffin type consistency we used to think that being able to tolerate things like muffins and biscuits um, and on a regular basis may help promotion you know, of tolerance. But actually, these kids may also be you know, going to outgrow them anyway. And it's just a different phenotype. The answer to that is probably in between, actually. Um, so that's something we consider once they hit around you know, 10, 12 months of age and, and, are, and are eating that. And we may liberalize things depending on what they're doing. We always ensure, I guess the one big thing around IgE-mediated food allergy and cow's milk protein allergy is safety. So we always ensure that the patient has a current action plan. And those are readily available on the ASCIA website. So we're going to link to that with this podcast. And there's action plans, both including antihistamines and also action plans for anaphylaxis. So in patients who have mild to moderate reactions, um, we'd always make sure that they have antihistamines. And in patients who have more severe reactions, then um, we would obviously recommend that they carry an EpiPen. EpiPens, unfortunately, aren't funded in New Zealand. Uh, and patients do have to, um, to purchase those. They don't need a script. And that's one thing that we often talk them through, the cheapest place being the online pharmacies, really. So, you know, the recommendations for carrying an EpiPen would be clearly fit had anaphylaxis before. If there's social factors, so if these families are living very remote or are traveling to places where they won't be able to get medical attention easily or might be more exposed, you know, to foods. Um, if they have underlying respiratory disease, bad asthma, those kind of things, or if the family wouldn't like home. So there's a kind of the, the dialogue that we have with families around EpiPens. And we spend a lot of time going through action plans with them, directing them to the ASCIA website and training them and using EpiPens. And there's e-training, you know, on those websites as well. For patients, we were introducing foods, you know, like cow's milk protein. And when we're thinking about introducing, you know, milk as an ingredient for baking, we may do that as a challenge in hospital. We may also do it at home, but that's going to depend on what kind of reaction did they have first. So generally not anaphylaxis. <laughs> And, you know, who's at home? Where do they live? How does the family feel about this? And what was the testing result? So, you know, there's quite a few things that kind of play into that as well. Um, and as I said, we, we monitor them on an annual basis to see whether we think that they may be outgrowing it. For the non-IGE mediated, again, they have a really good prognosis in general. Most of these kids will outgrow this by about 9, 12, 18 months of age. It seems a long time for the family. But it is important to reassure that generally, you know, as things mature, these things do tend to, to phase out. And I have a really open dialogue with families around how we manage this, because I think we have to take the, um, the consideration very much into account when we start modifying things in very young babies' diets. So here we're talking about that cow's milk protein tolerance and, and proctocolitis. So if this is a breastfed baby, um, then we may start, for example, with strict maternal elimination. So all forms of dairy out of their diet for two to four weeks to see if we can get improvement. And remember, it can take a few weeks for things to actually settle down. You're not going to see an improvement in two or three days. Okay, this is going to take, you know, a few, a few weeks. The gold standard here is to retry it. No one ever wants to do that once their baby is good. And we have to be aware of that, okay? 
if that doesn't work, and I always give families a bit of a, we're going to try this and then this is the next step and then this is the next step. Because telling a mum that she has to stop breastfeeding is huge if that is incredibly important to her. And there's a lot of, um, you know, things tied up in that which we're all, you know, aware of. So then we might need to consider other alternatives. So things like soy is the first step. Um, that doesn't work, you know, extensively hydrolyzed formula uh, followed by elemental formulas. And they need to be very objective trials. We took that out, we changed it. Did it work? Yes, no, before we progress, you know, onto the next step, really. Monitoring the weights, monitoring the symptoms, checking in on how they're doing. And often when I reintroduce foods into their diet, I often do it before the babies hit 12 months, so around 10-ish months of age. And I often say to families, hey, look, let's reintroduce things in a modified form to start with. There is the Irish milk letter available. I don't recommend that's used for IgE-mediated food allergy, okay? But it can be useful for non-IgE-mediated food allergy. So like, you know, the proctocolitis. So starting with things like muffins, pancakes, moving your way through just to really let the gut have a little bit of time to get used to this new food protein. And again, generally they outgrow it. So it is reassurance for families. Well, thank you, Annalise, for your time today. It's been a whirlwind and an overwhelming amount of information, but so, so very (laughs) useful. So thank you very much. I just wonder if we could conclude our podcast today with some take-home messages. Thanks, Louise. And yeah, sorry for giving you a whirlwind there of cow's milk protein. <laughs> um, so I guess the take home is that cow's milk protein allergy in infants is common. Okay. And it is important to try and get a good history and distinguish between the IgE and the non-IgE mediated cow's milk protein allergy. So history is the most important thing. Another key point is only test for foods that patient has reacted to. Never test for food that is tolerated. Okay, and always ensure that families have up-to-date action plans, uh, EPVN education, if it's um, appropriate, and direct them to some of the really valuable resources like the ASCII website where you know they can find a lot of information. Great. Thank you, Annalise. If you're a New Zealand GP, our podcasts are eligible for CPD points, so please log them. And at our website, you'll find a number of resources that we have mentioned in this podcast, goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a fabulous e-learning module, which goes into more depth on cow's milk allergy, which I'd like to raise your attention to. And thank you for listening.